Wildcast. Today I have the opportunity to sit down with my friend Rabbi Daniel Lawrence, who also calls himself the Millennial Rabbi. There's two of us. And I asked him important questions about what really resonates with people in their 20s and 30s, and why is Kabbalah on the rise? Why is Jewish mysticism a way in for so many young Jewish people? And what can we do to be more effective as educators, as rabbis? And this is even more important about our conversation what can we do to find personal meaning and happiness? Rabbi Daniel Bortz has got some great insights into psychology, into happiness, all from a spiritual Torah perspective. Take a listen. Okay, welcome to the Wildcast. I am joined by my friend, Rabbi Daniel Bortz, who is called the Millennial Rabbi, which is a little weird. It's kind of meeting your alter ego, because I'm supposed to be the millennial rabbi, but there could be more than one of us, I guess. <laughs> uh, welcome, Rabbi Daniel. Hey, Ben, Mac. Oh, it's so good to be with here, be here with you, Rabbi Wilds, and uh, you paved the way for all of us millennial rabbis. <laughs> well said, well said. So I want to jump right into it, because you have an amazing following, and I love listening to your Torah, and it's resonating. It's resonating. I want to ask you what, you know, when it comes to Torah and spirituality, you and I are both focused on the 20s, 30s cohort, what do you find the millennial or, I don't know, for lack of better term, younger generation, what resonates with them today and what what don't they resonate with uh, that you feel could be taught maybe in a better way? It's mm, a good question. I um, First of all, thank you so much for having me on. I I feel I first started my outreach work with teenagers, actually, uh, maybe Gen Z would be the proper uh, term. And my natural inclination was to speak to them like they were adults. So I never spoke down to them. I didn't I didn't just talk like lofty ideas. I really like spoke to them human to human um, and and was really real and open about what I was going through at their age. I wasn't judgmental whatsoever in what they were talking about, what they were going through, which are a lot of risque things that um, might not, they might not feel comfortable sharing with someone else. And I think that's one just through line or basic idea. If anybody asks me about social media sharing and uh, is to be uh, vulnerable, open and real. So it's not a having to be the coolest person necessarily in the room. Although I will say, you know, because I tend to love, a, a lot of aspects of culture and life as you do music sports everything for me it's not like i'm like forcing it i just genuinely am interested by many different subjects so i kind of like to find once i became we could talk about my journey later maybe but once i found a divine connection of um that god is in all places and in all things it was my natural instinct to take culture to take music and and to take all things that everyone's interest and attention's at and to find a higher purpose in them and relate it back. So it's always didn't have to go into the Parsha only or go into um, necessarily going out into the shoal, but able to bring these ideas into an accessible uh, connection to Judaism and to God in all things that people's attention were already at and keeping it relevant. So being real, being relevant. So I'm going to come back to the being real, relevant, vulnerable in a minute. And I think that's really important. Something you just mentioned um, just now is that you know, rather than saying in this week's Parsha, which kind of assumes people care what the Parsha of the week is and what mm. it has to say, you're, you're diving into something, which is something I've been trying to do for many years, is to find what our target audience, right? People, let's say in their 20s, 30s, already interested in, whether it's art, music, culture, and trying to 
not bridge the gap, but but um, explain a little what Torah has to say about those important parts of our lives. So I think that's amazing, and I, I do really enjoy that about your teaching and your education. But what what part of Torah do you think resonates with them? And, and also, you know, what you said about being open and vulnerable is so important. People don't want fake. People don't want speeches. People want the real you. Who are you? And that's that's really important. You have to be authentic. But once you're being authentic and once you're tapping into culture and music, what's the Torah that seems to be resonating? I think you have to share whether it's making an event or sharing Torah. If it speaks to you and it touches your hearts, the, the Tzemach Tzedek, the Thil Babaj said, words that come from the heart enter the heart. So if you feel people aren't inspired by your words, it's not necessarily them. But is it coming from a real place within you? And for me, that was in kind of the, the I would say, the secrets of Torah, the more mystical side, more philosophical side. That always spoke to me the most. Um, and, I, and it kind of ties into what we just said, where I think the Baal Shem Tov and the mystical approach was like, in all your ways, know Hashem, which means finding Hashem in nature, finding Hashem in, in all... Um, all things that call to us. And like you said, we can find it in the Parsha, but I think we can also find um, it in in relationships, in using the world that we live in as a guiding post of how to find Hashem. And just as I'm saying it to you, behold, in all your ways, know him. Da'ehu, das, knowledge, is mystically explained to be a not just a mental connection to God, which is what a lot of Torah classes tend to be, but also a das means a intimate emotional connection to Hashem as well. So not just keeping it cerebral, but finding ways to bridge the mind with the heart and body, which is what my main focus has been over the last few years, really finding ways to bridge the two and not, and, and, and um, making it relatable to to people so let me ask you and and, and let me ask you a a question that really is it's very personal to me um even though it sounds like it could be like a little academic but what do you deal with what what do you do when you're dealing with someone who doesn't believe in god because the kabbalah really assumes it the kabbalah is not trying to make a case that there is a god the capitalistic tradition which we we love is 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 just sort of god's given so what do you do if god is not a given with a student or with, 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 you know, I mean, atheism and is, is on the rise. Um, so what do you do with that? Yeah. I, 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 you know, I like, I try, it depends who I'm talking to cause I can go the intellectual approach if we want and have a philosophical conversation about looking at the unbelievable universe we live in. Like I'm friendly with Dr. Brian Keating, who was not, almost a Nobel prize winner. And he said, I said, what are you more fascinated by? What, what, what amazes you more? Is it that there's anything at all? That, that the universe, something came from nothing and then something? Or is it that from that beginning, that Big Bang, it led to a finely tuned universe and life as we know it? He said neither of them. He said consciousness, the fact that we have human consciousness, that we can even be asking these questions, uh, is something that blew his mind the most. And we could go down that rabbit hole of there's some unbelievable ideas of... Uh, Michael Turner of the Chicago Fermilab says to... Uh, the the, the fine-tuning of the universe is like taking a, a, a dart and throwing it from one end of the universe to the other and hitting a bullseye. So could that have happened by chance? Maybe. And I like going down that fun route with people and talking about the universe. But I think for me, my approach is, I think it was Rabbi Levi Yitzhak of Radichev. He said to an atheist, he said, the God you don't believe in, I don't believe in either. And that idea is like, 
I would be an atheist too if I had a five-year-old's understanding of who God is. If it's like a man in the sky, if it's, um, you know, many subjects we grow from second grade level, science, math, English history. Most people don't really delve that deep into theology, really. They're not really spending that time. Um, and, I, and if we start looking at God as this um, underlying intelligence, this, this, this energy that's, that precedes the physical universe as we know it, I think as we open up that conversation and we start getting into meditation, we start getting into what happens when I go to a higher state within myself, do I feel that a, a deeper connection to something that's more than what I see with my own eyes? Um, I think we start to have a common language where we start to see that we're not that far apart, that we're not as far apart as what we thought as we were at the beginning of the conversation. And then you can work from there a little bit. Right. Especially if you, um, if your concept of God, you know, like you, you made the, the comment about like, you know, the old bearded man in the sky, very hard for modern, you know, young people to kind of relate to that. There's a God over there and I'm over here. And I mean, I do believe in that on some level, but if you study more and more Kabbalah, you realize that we are just but a reflection of that being whether he's in the yeah. sky or not. I, I just want to share something random, yeah. but I like, you know, stories to bring it up. So I was in Madeira, Portugal about two weeks ago, and it's a stunningly beautiful place. And there's a gardens there that are every type of wildlife. And it was Shabbos or Shabbat. And I was sitting there and I decided to do an Abu Lafia meditation, which is something I've been really into lately. And we could talk about it more. Um, I've done one in New York as well. So it's, it's taking the Hebrew letters and meditating on them and verbalizing their sounds to try to reach higher states. And you move your head in the in the um, motion or the movement of the nikudot of the vowels. In in Judaism, the vowels are underneath, in between, or above the letters. They're not in the word itself. And for the for the kubuts, the shuruk, where you have a dot in the middle, you're, you make an oo sound and you move your head forward with the oo sound. And as I did that, the oo sound, I moved my head forward. I was I was already in a deeper state. I imagine that it popped in my head that picture of is it Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo where the finger of God in the old man in the sky is, is trying to touch the finger of, of Adam? And I felt that as I'm moving my head, ooh. Michelangelo, it's in the, uh, it's in the Sistine Chapel. Sistine yeah, Chapel. But you, felt, but you felt what? Say that again. I felt as I moved my head, and this is the end of the meditation. So I've already gone through 5, 10, 15 minutes of this. And as I'm moving my head, ooh, with a Hebrew letter Aleph, and as you, if you know the intentions of it, it can be very powerful. As I'm doing the ooh and I'm moving my head up and I'm getting to the end of the meditation and I have to stop, I can't keep doing it. It's the end of the round that he taught. I felt like I'm getting as close as I can and now I have to pull back. Kabbalah talks about that rutzo v'shuv. In, in Ezekiel's vision, the angels ran to God in love, but then they had to pull back in reverence. And I, I felt like this is, you know, we're talking about a more mature understanding. This is, I think, a more mature understanding of that Michelangelo version, which is like, spiritually, you can try to come as close as you can to touching God's finger. It's not his finger. It's feeling. It's a feeling of closeness. It's a level of consciousness. And you got to pull back because God wanted us as a soul and a body not to have clear revelation. And I pulled back and I opened my eyes and I enjoyed the nature I was in. But just starting to take these ideas of who God is. And I, to me, I think my mission on earth is a little bit to reframe who God is and what Judaism is, which sounds like a tall order, but at least a little bit to try to change that version that we've thought our whole life as children. That's beautiful. You know, I was just um, studying with my son, who I think you know, Yosef was in Israel. He just came in. 
And we've been learning Tanya for years together. And anyone who's listening is Tanya's the writings of Rafshner Zalman Liadi, the founding rabbi of the Lubavitch movement, brilliant, brilliant a scholar and Kabbalist. And the whole idea of, of God's chesed, of God, you know, bringing his light into the world and creating us, bring us into existence, but at the same time remaining hidden. The concept of tzimtzum, that God is, mm. you know, he's pouring his, his, his kindness into the world by, by creating the world, creating us and giving us whatever we need. And at the same time, you know, the world looks as though there is no God. The, the, the world, you know, God is hidden. And being able to explain to someone that the reason why, you know, it doesn't look like there's a God is, is on purpose. And that if God had revealed himself uh, too much, we would lose ourselves. And I think that's a very, very important idea for, for all of us to understand and to learn to embrace the idea that, that if God gave too much and if he made himself too clear and obvious, we wouldn't be able to benefit from God. He had to purposely hide himself. Now, it sounds convenient for someone who's a hardcore atheist. <laughs> of course, you know, by, the reason he's hidden is because he doesn't exist. By the way, I, I think there's a secret to that is that God didn't really hide himself because he hid himself. If you cover your face with your hand, are you looking at me still? On some level, yes. And I think that's what God did with nature. Mm -hmm. God's hidden within nature, but he's only hiding his face. You can It's still an, a, an expression of divinity to look at nature and find God in it. Um, you know, the Alter Rebbe gives the analogy uh, in Tanya of a, of a snail or a turtle that hides their head inside their shell. But in one of the books when I was 18 years old, that had a huge so, so impact. Wait, so, wait, yeah, go ahead. so wait, you see the shell, meaning when you, you see the shell, but you don't see what's inside the shell. So... That's, in other words, the metaphor is that we're seeing the complexity of, of the universe. You're seeing, you're seeing the lower manifestation of God's light. You're not seeing the higher revelation where you can clearly, your soul sees this almost like face-to-face, -face, like you and I talking, where you see the deeper side of my inner emotion. You see my hand. You see my leg. You see the outer garments of my, in chapter 42 of Tanya, my favorite chapter, he says when you're looking at nature, you should be looking at it and training. And Muna, faith, comes from the word Amon, which is a craftsman, an artisan. It's training. Emunah is not blind faith. It's simply a loyalty to a knowledge that you know to be true and training your mind's eye to not just look at nature on the external level, but to look at it as if garments of a king, that the king is wearing these garments. And the only reason we're desensitized to the God behind nature is because of the repetition. It's the only reason. If, if we grew up with elephants flying, if outside my window right now an elephant flew by, I would think nothing of it. But now we think it's a miracle because it's not common. Why is that any different with any beautiful thing we see, any sunset, sunrise, breathing, and our heart beating? It's just because we're desensitized because it's a, a repeating miracle. There's no reason why it should be this way. So I think we can start to unravel. And I was just going to say that book, World Mask by Rabbi Akiva Tatz, when I was young, is all about this concept. If anybody wants a, a taste of this idea, I would highly recommend uh, that book and Hasidut in general. Well, the, the other book I would mention also is, you know, our... You and I have talked about it before, Ravaya Kaplan, um, who, mm. who, would, who would stress that Judaism is not a Western religion, you know, and and he believes and he wrote that it is the original source of a lot of the Eastern faith systems, the Eastern religions that so many Jews are attracted to. Why, why do you think that there's more of a hyper focus maybe on rationalist Judaism, uh, but not on mysticism? And this is an important question for millennial rabbi, because it seems as though the Eastern, more spiritual approach is, is going to resonate a little more, is resonating more. 
I, I just did a, an event in London a few weeks ago and I was nervous on this point because in my mind and my stereotype, London to me is maybe a little more on the uh, rationalist approach, not to sit and meditate, but they enjoyed it. They enjoyed it too. I think, I think uh, you don't have to just be a, that's another thing, by the way, is that people assume that I'm like a hippie uh, and all love to hippies and to all the, that the culture of, of new age spiritual experiences. But I'm, I think I'm just a modern, I tend to have a spiritual love for God and I enjoy meditating. I enjoy connecting. But I'm also stressed and I'm in the world. And as you know, life in New York can be um, very intense. And I think if anything, uh, this concept of meditation or of, of, of feeling feelings and of going, going deeper shouldn't be, it's, it's healthy. It's something that uh, I think we all need. And I think it's beautiful when you can balance the two. You don't have to think of yourself as one or the other. I think we tend to box ourselves in uh, and say, I can't be this person who meditates and is spiritual and lights incense and, and at the same time be studying Talmud and be uh, intellectually honest. I think, I think we're everything. We're soul, body, we're multi-personal, uh, many aspects to our personality. Um, but I hear what you're saying, and I think maybe we were influenced by the culture we were in. Um, I think as Ash Ashkenazi Jews, we were in Europe, we weren't anymore in, if you talk to Sephardic Jews, where there was a lot of more ka Kabbalists, maybe part of the, although Kabbalists was a major aspect in Ashkenazi Jewry as well. Um, I think you but might I, know I, have a better answer for me. <laughs> no, but you're touching on it. And, and it has everything, I think, to do with the Enlightenment. But I, <clears throat> because the Enlightenment, <clears throat> Sephardic Jews were not as exposed to rational, imperialistic, you know, proofs. And, you know, I will only accept that which can be proven to me logically, rat rationally. And we Ashkenazic Jews were heavily influenced by that. And our Talmud works really well in that. And, and, and on mm. a personal level, for me, that's the way I was trained. I only got into Kabbalah and Hasidut maybe the last ten years of my life, yeah. but I'm and 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 I love the way you just said that, Daniel. That that it doesn't have to be a choice between the two, you know. That, that we don't have to peg ourselves like, oh, if you're an uber spiritual dude who likes to burn incense and meditate, but then you can't really explain anything rationally. There are different levels and depths of understanding the Torah. And I like I, to think of. You know, Sorry, I love what you're saying. I just want to add, I like to think of faith that way, is that faith is not irrational. Faith is supra-rational. It's using your mind and your intellect and your rationality to the highest level you can possible, and then having the humility to say, you know what, I'm human. This is as far as I can go. I, 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 I will now kind of humble myself and open myself up to maybe something that transcends my intellectual reason. Not irrational. You use your mind to the utmost. And then you say, you know, maybe there's something higher. And according to Kabbalah, there's Keter. Keter is higher than your Chachma Binadat. And we have this transcendent ability to be aware and to tune in to something that transcends our mind. And I don't just think there's the Kabbalah thing. I think anybody who studies, um, you know, different types of modalities of therapy, um, you know, understands that you can't solve everything on a therapist's couch. That's why I started incorporating uh, sound instruments like your son likes to do music helping people drop into a deeper place to kind of soothe things that they haven't been able to fix just through talking it out. Um, so just to add that point. Yeah, that's a great point. Sort of the classic talking therapy can't solve everything. Just like rationalism can answer a lot of questions, but yes. it won't answer all of them. And that's why we shouldn't dispense with the rational Maimodian kind of approach to things, but it's got its limit. I love the way you just said that, the super rational. You just touched on psychology a little, and I, I really enjoy a lot of your Torah because it seems 
to also um, speak to the issues a lot of young people are having today. If we've got more access to material goods than ever before, and yet it seems our overall levels of happiness, you know, my friend Shmuley Boteach likes to say that, that the United States, the most prosperous, affluent country in the world, yet we consume more than 75% of the world's antidepressants. What's going on and how can we use Torah? Kabbalah, mm. Judaism, to help heal and become happier people. Yeah, the, I think it was the Lubavitcher Rebbe who said, man will never be happy if he does not nourish his soul as much as he nourishes his body. So I think if we assume that we can fix our problems simply through physical means and aspects of the material world and not recognizing that we have a deeper side, then I don't think we're going to fully solve our happiness um, problem. And the... That's a great, great quote, by the way, from the Rebbe. Such an important yeah. quote. Because we yeah. take such... Yeah. We try to take as good, such good care of our bodies. But if so much of our makeup is spiritual, then all of this materialism will, will do wonders for the body, but leave the soul, you know, pretty hungry. Yeah, you see it, you know, it's typical for us to talk about it. We see it with Hollywood stars. We see it, you know, uh, Jim Carrey said, I wish on every person here that you'll get my level of fame and success and wealth so that you'll realize that it's not what's going to bring you happiness. I think many of us kind of look at that and we inside deep down, we're like, we'd be the exception. If you could give me all of that, that all these stars have, I'd be pretty happy. But I think they're living proof that that's not the case. And I know from my tiny bit of success in life in different ways that it's not like you get something and you've made it. You're always looking for the next thing. And I was thinking about this a lot lately, which was, is happiness a lack of pain or is happiness um, a, a, a result of something purposeful and meaningful? Is it enough to, I think the first step is to try to remove some pain if you can, um, you know, major pains, major aspects, but that's not enough. You're not gonna be happy just sitting on the beach. I think the American concept of like, let me work my entire life on Wall Street and then retire in Miami on the beach till I die. I, I don't think a feeling, thinking, conscientious person that's enough to bring, my, my mother always said, happiness is not a goal, it's a byproduct of living a meaningful life. Beautiful. It, it's a quiet feeling that you feel inside, not the dancing on the boats. Well, your mother's a very wise woman because she, she was machaving to the words of uh, my teacher, Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb of Blessed Memory, who's the president of Sheep University. Wow. And he spoke almost the exact same language that you just quoted your mom, um, that it's a byproduct. It's not something I can run after. What you're running after is purpose and meaning. And Mamela, as we like to say, what can come from that is a sense of happiness. I mean, you live in Manhattan. You've been around many successful people. What have you found, um, you know, talking to people and working with people? That I, I've actually with? found, because I do a lot of fundraising also, and that brings me, that brings a lot of wealthy people into my orbit. And some of them become close friends. Some of them really, really struggle. Because, um, like you said, you just said it beautifully before, it's just, it's not something you can ever get enough of. It's just the way the physical world operates. Um, and, and it just leaves you hanging. 
it, it's, I think, and you study Tanya, and the more I get older, uh, and th I, I think this paradigm of the Alter Rebbe, that you have an animal soul and a godly soul, or maybe in simple language, like an animalistic psyche and a kind of a, a higher spiritual psyche, when you get that really embedded in your head, you start to understand yourself so much more. You, we, each of us, no matter how spiritual or moral you are, we have a side that is insatiable, like a, like a puppy. Like if you see food, you will eat it. If you see um, a, an opposite sex gender, part of you just wants to be with that person, no matter what the consequences are. Um, you just want to sleep. You want to be comfortable. You want to be safe. It's not bad. It's just, it's just animalistic. And, and it does that bring, means that you, but, yeah. by the way, it does bring, I'm sorry to jump in. It does bring pleasure. There's no question. It does yes. bring pleasure, having a nice home and having security of the money coming in and doing well in business. And I, you know, I, I don't like to say like, oh, that's not going to do anything for you. Of course, it's going to do something. <laughs> right. I was going to say, I'm on a great, I, I like the good, the good life. And in a funny way with my social media, I like to show that you don't have to be like a, like not a loser, but you, you can be a, a spiritual person and have a good physical life. And that's what I grew up with my parents and my family. Uh, I'm on a great vacation. I'm, I'm, uh, but I can say that that's not what's going to, it doesn't leave you with that feeling that ultimately, um, uh, that joyful feeling, it's momentary, it's temporary, and that's good. It's good to have temporary moments of, of fun and pleasure. Um, but we want to find the pleasure and the joy that is a little like longer lasting, where you can like smile when you put your head on the pillow at night kind of feeling and not yeah. just like, you know. Yeah. And it's a little counterintuitive. You know, I wrote this in my, my first book, Beyond the Instant. I talked about how whenever I would get turned down on a fundraising ask, I'd buy a tie. This is when ties were in. I love ties. So every time I came home with another tie, my wife would be like, oh, sorry. She could figure it out. I got turned down. Or I didn't get as much as I wanted from this particular donor. Every time I put the tie on, it, it, it gave me like a little, but then sort of a diminishing point of return. Like the more times I use the tie, the less gratification. And yet when you extend yourself or you give away material things to people who need it more mm. than you, and you just extend yourself for other people, which would make us believe that like, we're going to be less happy because I've just basically given up something. I'm, I'm less, I have less now. And it has the exact opposite effect, which is so fascinating. Buying the tie was kind of like a pick me up, not to get too down on the moment of it didn't working out. Or okay, I think so. I, actually like I, I think so. I, people shop for that reason too. There is a sort of therapy in shopping where people like it's a quick fix. Um, mm. And and by the way, quick fixes could be helpful at times to keep you going. Oh yeah, to keep it going. Oh yeah. Um, but but that long -term, healthy ones healthy. <laughs> A tie is okay. Well, because you're touching on a massive, you were talking about antidepressants. I mean, you hit on a, uh, you know, the idea of needing immediate fix of pain is such a, I think everything's immediate in our generation. I am guilty of that as well. Um, and I think that, you know, very negative options to dull pain is, is very attractive for our generation because of that um, ADD generation we're in and immediate gratification with our phones. I think we look at it the same way when it comes to painful situations. A tie is definitely uh, preferable to an opioid or something else or, or whiskey, you know? Yeah, but the real, the real long-term, I like to call it contentment because happiness is more about pleasure and pleasure is fleeting. The real long-term contentment comes from, I, I think, giving, extending yourself on behalf of other people or causes or just getting yourself out of yourself. I mean, that's the, uh, every mm. time the word is used in the Torah, the Samachta, you know, Shavuos is coming up. 
you shall be happy in the holiday. If you look at all the things we do to be happy on a holiday, essentially they're extending ourselves either to get out of ourselves to be before God, Lifnei Hashem in the Mikdash in the temple, three times a year we would pilgrimage, bring these offerings yeah. which cost money, and then taking care of your family, making sure they're all fed, and making sure other people around you are taken care of and everybody can enjoy the holiday. So if yes. you look at the ingredients that go into celebrating a holiday, where the word simcha, joy, happiness, it's all about getting out of yourself. It's all about getting yourself into God beyond you or other people. You have to get out of yourself because if you're based only on yourself, if your whole world is yourself, so if you're not being successful right now, you feel useless. But if you look at yourself as a, as, as a, you're part of a bigger world, how can I be of service? Then you're always needed. You're always important. You can always smile and make someone else's day better. Um, and I would also say everything you touched on also applies and what you do with MJE and what I try to do is is community as well is friendship is being able to share a problem with somebody else talk it out with somebody else have support from somebody else i think those two together can be really good uh, giving going out of yourself not not basing it on your own um what you have and also being able to commiserate with a community with friends it's a very lonely generation we're in even in a place like new york or a place where you're surrounded by a lot of people i hear from a lot of young people that they feel lonely. We know COVID exacerbated that, yeah. but lonely physically, lonely existentially, people don't understand me. Nobody understands what I'm going through. Um, I think that is um, a real great thing of, of creating community that you do as well as is, is giving more meaning, getting out of yourself and finding others around you to connect with and, and build friendships. Thank you. I, I love what you just said about the putting, you didn't use this language, but it sounded like we don't want to put too many eggs in our own basket because we then beat ourselves up by definition. If our gauge of, of happiness is our own personal success, that is like a recipe for disaster. That, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be ambitious or try to be successful people, but, but uh, the way you put it about being a service to others, that's going to bring real joy because then it's not like, was I successful today? How much money did I make? How much didn't, did I get the job? Did I get the promotion? And then like, our life is just based on these circumstantial highs and lows of what happens to us. Yeah. Yeah. I think all of life is two things. How much did I um, improve myself, grow my character, develop my myself throughout my life? And that's my own journey. And then number two is how much did I impact the world around me? What, what, what impact did I have on those around me? And that's it, really. I hope everybody is successful monetarily. I hope everybody builds beautiful things for their family, takes care of everybody. But like, Essentially, I think those are the two uh, things that speak. speak what was, to me what, Daniel? What was your journey? Tell us how you got into this. Oh boy, uh, keep it keep it really short. Um, I grew up with a decent amount of. Were starting to learn. They didn't come with much Judaism, but they started to grow with it. I had it, and then around bar mitzvah age, where we start to become self aware for the first time in a real, like, deep way. What's my place in the world? I was like, I went to public school. I kind of left my Jewish connection and I wanted to be successful in that space and in, in partying, in uh, being accepted by everybody around me. And at around 15, 16, 17, I feel like I had a mid age, uh, you know, midlife crisis at like a mid teen crisis, which we all have, but for real, I really like went into a dark place and then a light place. I really, um, I don't know how to describe it except in Hasidic language of Isarusa de la Ela, which means God gives a gift from above and inspires it. You didn't do anything. I didn't like study for a tent for a year. Hashem gave me this like 
feeling, a spiritual connection. And I, it was my choice to build on that. And I did, I started learning more about wow. what is Judaism, started growing with it, connecting. And after one year at, in UC Santa Barbara, I, um, I went to, to Jerusalem to start learning in yeshiva. And I've always been somebody who wants to bring it to others. So my intention the whole time was learning, 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 so I could then fill my cup as much as possible and then pour out to others. And, and that's what I've been doing for the last 10 years, became a rabbi 2011. And um, I've been in different ways in my own journey, trying to find how I can best grow myself and at the same time uh, impact people in the way they need it um, in my own unique way. And that's been the journey. Thank you for sharing that. What happened when you were 15, 16, 17? That, I'm curious because that's a, that's a, a, it's a very interesting age for that kind of awareness or you know, openness to greater spirituality. Right. I do think when you've hit a dark place or you fall, it is it is a Shem, God's preparation, like like planting in the dirt. That's where the growth is going to come after. So anybody listening or anybody who's going through something difficult, I do think it's paving the way for something greater. But I went through a dark thing. I got in a lot of trouble and I, it wasn't just outer problem. I think internally I was just unlike other people around me. I think I was very much thinking about like, you know, what what is, why am I here? And like, kind of where's my place in all of this? Um, and I guess I'm just an intense person. So maybe it happened with me younger. And, and I think I'm in touch with emotions. I don't think, um, um, I don't think it took me too long to tap into that, but I think it was just a gift. Honestly, I don't think um, it, what actually happened to me, the actual story is that I was in synagogue with my dad, dutifully going Friday night to the local synagogue, just out of like respect, not because I had any interest. And uh, it was Amida Friday night, uh, the peak of this of the service and Friday night throughout my life. And those prayers have always been a very Shabbat prayer has been a very powerful thing for me. Uh, but at that time, it wasn't powerful. I was just kind of in the middle of it. And I all of a sudden felt a desire and yearning to connect to something higher. And I had no idea what that was. I remember coming home uh, and asking my mother, who's a more spiritual lady, I'm like, what was that? I genuinely didn't understand what it was. And she said, you had a spiritual experience. And um, it didn't stop. It was like a candle lit. And I just had to kind of find out what that meant for me and, and continued along that path. Even though I kept falling in other ways, I was then it had been kindled. And I started learning. And, and, that, and, that, and that, that, that spiritual epiphany or that desire was lit in synagogue, actually, during a pr Friday night service. Yeah, I think it was the quietness, the quiet time. And I want to give respect and all due respect to synagogue and prayers because it gives you that moment to tap in if you if you so choose. Uh, but I think it was just kind of that silent communion with God, which I've taken in many different ways, not just prayers, but also in meditation. I have my own thing I've been doing since that time, uh, late at night before bed, my own way of being quiet and alone with God. Um, so I think there's many ways to do it, but I do, get, you got to give prayer its props. Prayer is like a therapy session, alone time between you and God, where you can really in your mind, like call out and connect and quiet all the noise that you have throughout the day and just connect to Hashem. So it was during prayers. Yes. Beautiful. And there's something special about the Friday night. I don't know if you went to a Karbach or what kind of Friday night davening you went to that I, Friday night. I, it was a, not at all a very uh, special, I would say, a service. It was very interesting that it happened then. But I will say this past Friday night, I was in Sfat, my favorite, my favorite city on earth. Um, I like to say I'm half New York, half Sfat. Part of me wants to get in the world and help the world. Part of me wants to detach, learn Kabbalah and meditate in Sfat. Um, and there's an area 
they call it the Arizal synagogue, but actually the Arizal supposedly, the tradition is where the students would walk to the fields and stand in the fields. He'd place his hand on his heart and he would, he would say by heart the words of prayer, almost like a mantra. And he would go into a deeper place. And there's an area above the Arizal synagogue outdoors where the Arizal would um, pray. And when I was 18, I went with a five-day program with, with Or Sameach in Jerusalem, and we did a Shabbaton there. And I was standing there overlooking the hills of uh, Maron and from, from Tzvat. And I had a feeling of, I imagine, I've never done acid, but I imagine that's what it feels like. I felt one with all things and all everyone. I didn't feel a division amongst people or others. And, I, and it was just during a Friday night basic prayer service, but I, I, I do believe we can naturally... Um, and I try to help people do this, is to naturally tap into this higher reality. And that, that, that why do we close our eyes when we say Shema, the Shema prayer? I think it's this point. We're saying God is one. Just keep your eyes open. Look around you and say God is one. But the human nature is to be distracted by all the disparate details and the difference of the faces of the people. And when you close your eyes and you're able to go to a higher place through Tveikut and through meditation, you can then kind of hopefully uh, feel sense that really we are, there, there's not as many divisions as we think. And really everyone's going through the same struggles and really we're all collectively coming to a higher place. No matter how bad the world looks, we're actually growing in our consciousness where the type of conversations I'm seeing with people are there's beautiful growth going on as well amidst all the craziness of the world. And um, this past Shabbat, I went to the exact same location uh, 18 years later, and I, I, I davened alone on Saturday by day, which sounds ridiculous. Tzfat has the most inspiring synagogues on earth. But my nature is to sit in nature and to speak to God quietly alone. That's where I get, I still love community as well. But I think you have to have a little time um, alone as well with your thoughts and with your connection. Yeah, it's all about that balance. All about the balance. Yes. Okay, Rabbi Bortz, I have one last question from you, and that is your love and interest in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. What's the deal with you and Jiu-Jitsu? Right. So so we Jews are allowed to be strong as well and protect ourselves. Uh, I joke that Jiu-Jitsu has the word Jew in it, and therefore I had to, uh, I had to give it a shot. Um, I was teaching a, a bar mitzvah boy, um, and his father and him were really into the Jiu-Jitsu. And he said, Rabbi, you got to try this out. And I did. Um, I had done some boxing in high school, and I said, you know, I'll give this a shot. And I have to admit that for the first while, almost the first full year, I was getting destroyed. It was not very fun. More advanced people, feels like you're drowning. People are just bigger than you, stronger than you, and they're more skilled than you. And, and they're choking you out. You're getting arm barred, all types of movements. But then as you start to progress a little bit, it's very addictive. That's good, uh, good training for the rabbinate, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Rabbinate is, uh, is um, I think, is black belt and jujitsu is a white belt. It's a, I, I worked with teenagers, so I tell people that's the hardest. And then, you you know, if you can relate to them, you can relate maybe to, to an older demographic. But, uh, yeah, I can only imagine um, for, for a pulpit rabbi or a real commu a big community. Um, and uh, I ended up getting a little bit better at it, and I ended up competing. And competing is a scary thing because you are, it's not the gym anymore. You arrive at this big stadium of a bunch of mats and you realize you're actually like going into combat. I'm not going to say I'm David Amelech going out to, to battle, but you are like, this guy's trying to like submit me. He wants to not kill me, but almost. Because when you tap out, the guy has you in a chokehold. If he wanted to, you'd be finished. So it is kind of like this, it's fake, but it's a taste. And I think it also helps men humble themselves more and women. It, it helps 
Um, funny enough, learning martial arts, you think makes someone more aggressive, but I found it makes aggressive people actually more because people are aggressive because they don't have confidence in, in their abilities. So if you have a little more confidence in your abilities, I think you're more able to be calm in situations that are uh, could be more aggressive. And um, I, ultimately, I just want to break down stereotypes of, uh, you know, a weak uh, Jewish rabbi can't be. No, we can be doing jujitsu. We can be strong. I like to break down any boundaries of what an Orthodox person or a rabbi even is supposed to be or look like, as I'm sure you do in many different ways of your life. Uh, so that was also a fun thing to do is to compete. Yeah, how did we get that reputation of being like, you know, the more learned, erudite, religious? When you look at King David and the Maccabees, who are strong. More of a, more of a, right, the more of a wuss. And it, it, totally, if you study Tanakh, man, the, 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 the rabbis, the religious personalities were tough. They were, I mean, like King David and these, yeah. these they, were, they were prophets. They were playing music to God. They were fighting. They were like, you know, they, everything that, you know, today's culture might look up to, that's, that's what we were. And I think the ghetto... And being oppressed so long, it's all, it's amazing that we even survived. I don't think we can blame our, our how we ended up. The I, I remember I, I'll tell you I had a professor when I was in graduate school, and he was talking about Zionism, and he was kind of an expert on Zionism, and it was upsetting because he was describing the old shtetl Jew, the the old European rabbi with a long white beard and black coat, you know, with a Talmud under his arm and like hovering over and like, and now the proud Israeli with the rifle, the M16 and the uh, baby. And, and I was like, is that really the way is, you know, now, unfortunately, there is that there was that reality of the European Jew. And there is that reality of the strong Israeli Jew. But but Torah is supposed to make us powerful, not aggressive. Yeah, but but really confident. I think again, once again, if you can, the most beautiful thing in the world, what is uh, my favorite Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, chapter four, number one says, who is strong? The one who conquers his inclination. If I see a truly strong, Jordan Peterson likes to talk about this. He says, it's not as admirable to be a weak person and to be a pacifist. It's admirable when you're a strong person and you really could use that strength and you choose peace instead. So being able to defend yourself and to defend your people. And as we know, you and I very well, um, attacks on Jews, daily throughout the world and wherever you are, I think not just relying on a miracle, but being able to defend yourself well, the Israeli army, and then practically martial arts, and then choosing peace whenever possible, running away from a fight and trying to defuse a situation should always be the goal, but having the ability to defend yourself at the same time. So it doesn't have to be, once again, one or the other. We can have the strong Israeli. When I see an Israeli soldier with a kippah or, or he's learning Torah and he's got his, his gun next to him or davening at the Kotel, it's one of the most beautiful, I don't know what it is about that sight. Of that. It's very, very powerful. It's very powerful because I think it speaks to this perception that unfortunately prevailed for so long of this weak Jew. And it makes Torah look, eh. you know, it makes our traditions look like they're not defendable or we are. And it's so not the case, like you were mentioning from Tanakh, King David. Uh, and listen, thank God we live in a day and age where we can we can fuse those images yes. of the Torah scholar with the, I don't want to say the gun. But with someone who's really able to defend and himself. Re yeah, and, recognizing um, God is the one who ultimately will protect us. But we're going to make a vessel for that protection practically on the ground. Beautiful. Well, that's a great way to end, by the way, to make ourselves into vessels. Yes. To be able to receive all of the blessings that Hashem wants to have for us. You have done that, uh, my friend, Rabbi Daniel Bortz. And you have just really illuminated so many people's lives with your beautiful teachings and your Torah. And I thank you for the help that you've been giving us MGE downtown. 
I know you've been working together with Rabbi Ezra teaching some classes down there. We look forward to doing more of that. Um, I don't want to take you out of your beautiful Israel spiritual bubble that you're in now. Tzfat, Netanya, wherever else you're traveling to. We, we got to bring Tzfat um, and Jerusalem back to uh, Manhattan and fuse the two. That's the goal of this combo. <laughs> uh, Manhattan can use a lot of Tzfat. <laughs> it's got some Netanya, but it can use a lot of Tzfat. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. Um, I really, I thank you so much. Hashem should bless you with continued success yeah. in your amazing work. You should go from strength to strength. And thank you for your time. This is really amazing. Thank you, Rabbi, for all that you do for all of us and really genuinely paving the way um, for, for reaching out to this generation. And uh, may we continue to just grow and, and make massive impact and, and, uh, and, and bring Mashiach. Amen. Amen. Amen.